0: From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio. Fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. The last two years have been crazy times for the firearms industry. Record sales and millions of new gun owners, but also ammo shortages and supply chain issues, the same as many other industries. The National Shooting Sports Foundation just held the SHOT Show in Las Vegas, and the word is the firearms industry is stronger than ever. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and we're joined by Mark Olivia, National Shooting Sports Foundation Director of Public Affairs, to give us the inside scoop on the state of the firearms industry in early 2022. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast.
1: I appreciate you having me back, Dean. It's It's a pleasure to talk to you today.
0: So, Mark, it's been a while since we had you on, and since SHOT Show just happened out in Las Vegas, I wanted to have you back so we could talk about it. You know, um, I used to live out in Las Vegas, but I've never actually been to SHOT, and I think a lot of people aren't really aware of that show the way they are of some other shows. For our listeners, can you just describe SHOT? What is that show all about?
1: Yeah, so Shot Show or the Shooting, Hunting, and Outdoors Trade Show is the largest uh, expo, if you will, of the firearm industry in the outdoor recreation space. It is this year was eight hundred thousand square feet with twenty four hundred exhibitors. Uh, and this was the year that we were able to actually showcase our expansion. Of course, last year we had to unfortunately cancel the show because of COVID, so we weren't able to show off that new expansion. But this year, we we maxed out every inch of uh, the Venetian Expo, and there's a they have installed a little sky bridge for us, so we could go over to Caesar's Forum, and we expanded over into Caesar's Forum as well. So we have uh, roughly 14 miles of of aisles that you would have to walk to uh, to. See see everything you want. I tell people if you're going to go to SHOT Show, you have to go with a plan. You can't just wander the aisles and hope to see everything because you're never going to accomplish it. You really have to map out what you want to see, who you want to talk to, and, and how you're going to get there. But it, I think if I could best describe it to your listeners, it's... Uh, Probably the firearm and ammunition industry's version of the Detroit Auto Show. This is where all the manufacturers are rolling out their new models. They're talking about uh, what their new products are and and, uh, showing you what the latest innovations are going to be and and how that's going to affect the market in the coming year.
0: Now, I've been to the NRA show, their annual meetings. How does a shot compare as far as size
1: Uh, Well, our floor space, I I can't compare the size of it, but the attendance for the NRA annual meetings is probably much higher. Again, we had about 43,000 attendees this year at SHOT Show, um, and that was a success. Uh, And there was a lot of people who thought we weren't even going to be able to have the show. We normally will be roughly around 50,000, 55,000 attendees. We expected our attendance would be down a little bit. Uh, But our attendance is always lower because we are a closed trade show. You have to be in the industry uh, to get into SHOT Show. And and that's... The reason is, is because this is where the manufacturers are meeting with the distributors and the retailers, and they're making the deals for the year. They're they're looking for those new products that they want to put on the shelves. They're looking for uh, the orders that they want to fill and uh, and trying to get those new products to market. So, for us to be able to do that and have it as a as a trade show, we have to limit it to just those in the industry. Because if we had that open to public. Uh, Unfortunately, we wouldn't be able to get everything accomplished that the manufacturers and distributors and retailers are are seeking to get done at the show just because it would be so filled up. Uh, So really, NRA annual meeting is a great opportunity for the public to get out and see a lot of the things that... I was able to see at SHOT Show this year, and and I'm sure that the NRA is very excited to be uh, getting their show back online as well. And I think that you're going to see a lot of the distributors, a lot of the retailers and the manufacturers are going to be very excited to be at NRA's annual meeting as well.
0: Now, did the SHOT Show get canceled? I know you said it was canceled last year, of course. Was it canceled in 2020 as well?
1: Uh, In 2021, it was canceled. We did have it in 2020. Uh, It was, of course, just before the onset of the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, uh, And and we were able to have the show went off without a hitch. Uh, It was a couple months after that. Then we started seeing the uh, COVID uh, pandemic start to hit and a lot of the shutdowns happen. Uh, we were very fortunate. We worked really, really hard uh, with the Trump administration, the Department of Homeland Security, to to get the industry named as a critical infrastructure, so manufacturers, ranges, and retailers could stay open, so your listeners could, you know, exercise their Second Amendment rights. Um, it would- is critical for national security a lot of the uh, a lot of the manufacturers not only selling firearms to the to the public but they're also uh, fulfilling contracts to the military uh, and beyond that um, you aren't able to exercise your second amendment rights if the manufacturers can't make those firearms and get those firearms to the gun counter and if you can't get to the gun counter and purchase that firearm you're being denied your Second Amendment rights. So we were very fortunate that the administration saw it that way. The Trump administration worked with us. The Department of Homeland Security understood that. And but beyond that too, even from a safety perspective, a lot of your hometown police departments are are reliant upon your local firearm retailer to purchase and repair the firearms that they're using and purchase the ammunition that they're using. I know that my local police department, they trained at the same range where I train at, uh, and they're buying their ammunition from local sources around here. Your bigger police departments, like your big cities, Miami and Los Angeles and New York City, they maybe have the size to be able to do their own contracts, Uh, but a lot of your small hometown police departments, your county sheriffs are, are reliant upon your local uh, retailer. so uh, we were fortunate that we were able to keep that open through throughout the pandemic, and uh, we we're very very fortunate to be able to have the uh, shot show back open to the to the trade show to to the industry rather uh, this year. So we're really happy to be back.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up about uh, with the Trump administration and you know having the firearms industry declared an essential activity. I forget exactly the wording on that. That was one of the reasons. That we started working on an emergency powers bill back in 2020. We started talking about it, and we've been working with NSSF on that. And uh, we we think we might be able to get it passed because you're right. If the industry is infringed in any way, like we saw, you know, ranges shut down, stores shut down, we saw a lot of um, firearms activity shut down that wasn't really involving just individuals, you know, buying guns. And I think a lot of people didn't really quite understand, well, how is that a Second Amendment issue? Well, because where do you think all the guns come from? You know, if you, if you can't get access to firearms, if you can't get access to ranges, if you can't get access to stores, classes, and everything else, that essentially shuts down your Second Amendment rights.
1: Yeah, Dean, you're, you're exactly right. Your Second Amendment rights begin at the gun counter, and, and we know that. Uh, in in a lot of states, uh, they were fortunate that they didn't have any kind of issues. And I know that you've been instrumental in working with Ohio, uh, the legislature there, and, and the governor's office to try and get this bill across the line. And that's really an insurance measure for future uh, governors to make sure that they're not abusing their authority. And we've recently seen was the case uh, there in Ventura County, the, the three-judge panel out of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, uh, ruled that Ventura County's uh, closure of firearm retailers there was unconstitutional. They had no uh, authority to do that. They overstepped the bounds of of the of the power and the authority that they've been given by their citizens. Uh, and and this it, it's you look across the way it happened. You look at gun control states like Illinois. Well. The Illinois governor was one of the first to come out and say that he was not going to shut down uh, the fire industry or retailers in Illinois. But we saw it abused in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey and in New York and Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. And a lot of those were, were turned back only when they were faced with uh, you know court action. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, was threatened with a lawsuit. When it was filed, they, they turned back and they didn't do it. But New Jersey lost their lawsuits Massachusetts lost their lawsuits. Uh, and all these states were forced to, to reopen their firearm retailers because they were unlawfully closing them. So yeah, your, your gun rights really do begin at the gun counter. And if, if your elected officials are denying your ability to get to that gun counter, then they are denying your Second Amendment freedoms. They're denying
0: you your civil rights. And that lawsuit you just mentioned, they kept bike shops open so you could get a bicycle, but they shut down the gun stores.
1: Exactly. And that's, what, and that's what the judges noted in their, uh, in their opinion was that there was no rhyme or reason that they're uh, for closing one store but not the other. And so if they had blanket closed every store in the county, then there could be grounds for doing it. But if you're going to close, you know, uh, a firearm re- retailer location, but you're going to keep that bike shop open next door, well, then this is clearly a case of discriminatory action against a politically disfavored industry. And that's what it is in California, unfortunately.
0: So, Mark, I've seen all the stories about massive gun sales over the last couple of years. We've been reporting that uh, here at Buckeye Firearms Association. We've seen the bare shelves and everything. But is that continuing or have sales normalized recently?
1: Yeah, well, we, uh, we've seen spikes before, but 2020 really set a new mark. Um, the record prior to 2020 was 15.7 million background checks nationally, Uh, For the sale of a firearm. And that was in 2016. Of course, that was an election year. There's a lot of talk about, you know, if if, uh, Hillary Clinton was going to pursue her gun control agenda or was Donald Trump going to pursue his uh, protection of the Second Amendment. And and a lot of people were concerned and and they were buying a lot of firearms because they were worried that they weren't going to be able to do it in 2017 or 2018. Well, we saw that Donald Trump was elected and then sales settled out and we typically see sales settle out. But in 2020, something completely different happened. We kind of had a confluence of several like, several things that kind of came together to act as one big impetus to push people to buy firearms. In March of 2020, we had 2.3 million background checks for the sale of a firearm, and that's the most we've ever had in, in one month ever, uh, and that was, of course, coinciding with the pandemic shutdowns. So that's when you had the governors and the mayors telling everyone that they had to stay home, and, and they were shutting down uh, restaurants or shutting down schools or shutting down businesses. Uh, at the same time, you also have police officers, police departments that were warning the public that they weren't going to be able to respond to every 911 call because their own officers were becoming infected with COVID, and they don't want to become vectors of infection In their community. So people start to realize they were going to have to be their own first responder. Additionally, at the same time, you also had governors that were releasing prisoners out of prison. Some of these were uh, violent offenders, violent felons, who hadn't completed their sentences. And some of those were being uh, arrested within days of their release for the commission of another violent act. And people saw this and they took responsibility for their for their safety. Well, that continued through March, April into May. And of course, at the end of May, we saw the unfortunate death of George Floyd. And the protests that surrounded that very quickly morphed into rioting and looting uh, and and violence. Uh, And it wasn't just one city. It wasn't just one state. This was a national phenomenon. It happened everywhere. And we've seen. Other events before, like hurricanes, where you've seen some lawlessness that may have surrounded it afterwards that caused a spike of firearm sales in a certain region. But this continued to propel sales throughout the year across the nation. And that, of course, went through all through the summer. And then we went into the the fall where people really start to pay attention to the election year. Uh, And and again, we had the case of President Trump uh, running on protecting your Second Amendment rights. And President Biden, who was uh, proposing the most strident gun control agenda that has ever been put forth to voters, even much more far reaching than what Hillary Clinton had ever uh, proposed um and and that caused a lot of people a lot of concern and they continued to buy firearms so we ended up 2020. 2020- with 21 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. And that shattered all the previous records. And to kind of put that into context for you, again, we already talked about 15.7 million was the previous record in 2016. But in 2019, there was 13.2 million background checks for the sale of a gun. So we went from 13.2 to over 21 million in one year. and, And no one could have predicted that. Well, as we went into 2021, we saw that firearm sales were still maintaining a very strong pace throughout the year. And every month, nearly every month in 2020 was second only to, or in 2021, rather, was second only to those months in 2020. And we ended up 2021 with 18.5 million background checks for the sale of a firearm. So we've come off of that very high peak of 21 million, but we're still at a very high sustained level, of 18.5 million. Which is, you know, head and shoulders above the, you know, the previous records. If you set 2020 aside, still well above tw- uh, the 15.7 million of 2016. So we're still seeing there's a, a very strong interest in firearms and firearm ownership and firearm sales. Uh, and when we're waiting to see, of course, what the numbers will look like here for January of 2022, we'll get those, you know, shortly into the beginning of February. Uh, but we suspect that uh, the firearm sales will continue to be, you know, fairly strong in the months ahead.
0: So what about the ammo situation? Last time we had you on, this was specifically what we were talking about. Yeah. We were in the middle, middle of this gigantic uh, shortage. And I mean, you just couldn't, you couldn't get ammo almost at all. A lot of conspiracy theories going on about that. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's going on now? Are things back to normal?
1: Yeah, I think it'd be a little too early to say things are back to normal. Um, I think things are getting better. But um, again, I think it's something that your listeners have to be reminded that you can buy one firearm, but you're always going to need more and more ammo, right? Um, And again, we saw in 2020, we had an estimated... 8.4 8.4 million first-time gun buyers so we had an injection of eight and a half million people who weren't in the gun market who now were gun owners and they needed an ammunition as well um, and this past year we we estimate through our retailer service that there were 5.4 million people who bought a gun for the very first time in 2021 so another injection of another you know five and a half million people into that market so over the past two years we've absorbed into gun ownership uh we've absorbed uh you know nearly 14 million people who are out learning how to use those firearms. We're seeing that classes are still full. Rangers are still busy and they're learning. We're seeing more hunting uh, licenses being sold. People are out in the woods, in the fields, and in the marshes, you know, out there hunting, trying to put food on their table. Uh, So ammunition is being consumed. It's being used. And the ammunition manufacturers are working really, really hard to, to make that, uh, make that, you know, gap a lot smaller than it was. Like I said, it's getting better, uh, and it's still going to be some time before we get back to, I think, any level state of what people are calling normal. Um, I think one of those successes is, you know, Vista, uh, Vista Outdoor purchased Remington Ammunition uh, out of bankruptcy. Uh, and when, you know, last year, when Remington was was being bought, they had maybe about three, 400 employees. Um, but I was down there this past summer at, in Lonok, Arkansas, and I was able to walk through the plant and they were running shifts around the clock. They had over, I think, 1,200 employees at the time and they were still hiring uh, and they're running shifts around the clock. And I, I mean, I was watching trucks roll out of that place. Full of ammunition, getting them back out to market. So I think everyone's very excited to see Big Green come back and be able to supply the ammunition that we've all wanted and we've all needed. Um, you've seen a uh, you know production capacity increase with uh, Hornady, with with uh, Vista, uh, the rest of the family of Vista ammunition, which includes Federal, Spear, CCI, and of course now Heavy Shot. And um, so they're cranking out as much as they can. But you know, people always ask, well, why can't they just make more and make more? And it's always tough to sit there and say, oh, you could just expand your factory. Well, that's a capital investment that those companies have to make. And they want to make sure that that's going to be profitable in the out years. And on top of that, it's not just an investment in infrastructure and in machinery. It's also an inf- investment in people. And no one wants to hire someone today and then turn around six months later and have to lay them off. So they're trying to make sure that they're making smart investments for the future. Right now, I know that the Hornady's have been out there talking about their production capacity. And they said that, you know, at the beginning of this, they were, you know, the first year, they were putting about 30% more ammunition on the shelves than they had ever made before. Now they're saying they're closer to 40 or 50%. And we're seeing that Vista continues to, you know, push out through all their family of ammunition manufacturers, more and more ammunition. So we're seeing the price is starting to come down, and that's in response to uh, availability. Of course, you know the market and the laws of supply and demand kind of dictate that. Uh, but we're seeing it's becoming a little bit more available. I know that the stores where I live, you're starting to find some of those calibers that are probably a little more common or more available now. I think some of those little off calibers are still tough to find. Even some of the ones that we consider mainstream now, like 6.5 Creedmoor, still a little tough to find. But you're you're able to find it if you look forward and uh, you're your shopping online. But we've also seen investments by manufacturers on the other side to, to take advantage of this new market share and, these, and this new desire for more ammunition. Ammo Incorporated announced last year that they were going to build a new manufacturing facility in Wisconsin. Sig hour announced that they were going to expand their ammunition production in Arkansas to be able to meet the capacity because they want to be able to make everything for their firearms from stem to stern. And uh, and just this past week, we saw that there was an announcement uh, a primer maker is going to be opening a new facility in Texarkana, Texas, uh, because we know that primer Primers were an issue, and that there's only a couple of people who, you know, a couple of companies who are manufacturing their own primers in the United States. Well, this is obviously, a, you know, a response to that, and then there's a, a, an opportunity for this business to grow and to be able to fill that void. So, I think it's going to still get a little bit better. It's not quite back to what we saw as normal, and and of course, some of the supply chain issues that are hitting every industry right now are also hitting the ammunition manufacturers, trucking and everything else. But there's not so much a shortage. I think we talked about this last time. Not so much a shortage as there is an overabundance of demand that wasn't anticipated two years ago. And then they're really working hard to close that gap.
0: What about here in Ohio, Mark? Uh, Can we get you to open up uh, some firearms uh, manufacturers here or bring some ammo manufacturing to the state? You know, we just had a big announcement that Intel – uh, just outside of Columbus, Ohio, is going to build what might end up being the largest chip manufacturing facility in the world. Well, that's great, but what about uh, gun manufacturers? You know, Ohio would be good for them. What, what's the chance that we're going to get a major manufacturer move from a state that's maybe a little less favorable to them and bring it right here to Ohio?
1: Yeah, so it's it's actually a, a really good point and a very pressing point. So this past year we saw some really big announcements about big companies making moves. Uh Smith and Wesson has, you know, over a hundred and what thirty plus years in in Massachusetts. They've been in Springfield uh forever. But um they they are facing a situation with that legislature there in Massachusetts is making it nearly impossible for them to be able to stay in business. They were considering legislation that would have made it illegal to manufacture an AR-15 style rifle in that state, even though you can't buy it in the state anyway, they were going to try and make it illegal. So Smith and Wesson made the announcement that they're going to move their headquarters and some of their production down to Marysville, Tennessee. Uh, and that's just smart business. And the CEO, Chris Smith has been out there talking to media where he said, you know, so it wasn't the decision he wanted to, to make, but it was the decision he had to make for the company's future. Um, additionally, you saw Remington Firearms, Remington Arms Company, the you know the the firearm side of what used to be Remington has now gone into private ownership, and they're making firearms still out of Ilian, New York. But the ownership of that company now said they're going to establish their headquarters in LaGrange, Georgia, and move some of the production down there. So they'll maintain some production in New York, but they're going to start to uh, here in the next couple of years be turning out firearms that have, uh, you know, LaGrange, Georgia on the on the side of that gun. Uh, So those are very exciting news. And you see that there are states that are very hungry to do that. So at SHOT Show this year, we actually hosted seven governors uh, to visit the show. Um, and unfortunately, Governor Dewine wasn't one of them. We would love to have him out there. We'd love to be able to talk to him. But these governors are coming to Shot Show not just so they can enjoy the show, but so that they can look for business and they can, you know, try to attract businesses into their state. Uh, and some some of these states have been very aggressive at doing that. If you look at Wyoming, Wyoming uh, has been very successful. They they lured Magpul across the border from Colorado when they had their issues there in Colorado about magazine uh, restrictions. They also brought high-vis across the border. A couple of years ago, they we had the announcement at SHOT Show with then Governor Meade and Adam Weatherby that they were going to pick up roots out of California and move to, to Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, but you've also, I mean, you look at Georgia, there's been stories in, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about how Georgia is very quietly becoming a Firearm manufacturing powerhouse. You have Glock, Heckler and Koch, uh, Taurus, Daniel Defense, BPI Outdoors. I mean, you've got some great manufacturers down there, and they're in the hunt. Uh, you know, a few years back, you, you know, we talk about some other companies moving Beretta. You know, several years back, made the decision that they were going to have to move some of their production, and some of their. Activities out of Maryland because it was becoming untenable there, and of course they established their headquarters in Gallatin, Tennessee. So you're seeing some states who are very aggressive in trying to bring in uh, the firearm industry because it is a growing industry. We you know it's an over 63 billion dollar industry today, employing 330 thousand Americans, and the governors are seeing this, and and they're out there at Shot Show letting those businesses know that they want their they want their business there. They want that economic contribution to those states and they're, they're willing to work with them to make it uh, very attractive to come to that state. So Ohio certainly has the talent pool, has the industry uh, available is there and it, it certainly could. And it's, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be very interesting if the state legislature and, and the governor um, made a more aggressive attempt to try and attract those businesses to Ohio.
0: Well, you were talking a little about some of the politics and legislation uh, that drives some of these moves. So let's just turn to that for a little bit. You know, there are always people wanting to pass bad laws. That's not going to change anytime soon. From your perspective, Mark, what are the biggest threats to the overall firearm industry right now? Yeah,
1: so I think on the legislative front, you know, there are things that we're actually working on offense on and that's, uh, you know, recently, last year we had uh, the Firearm Industry Non-Discrimination Act passed or what we call the FIND Act was passed and signed into law in Texas. And that's a law that says, uh corporate entities cannot hold public contracts like bonds uh, and at the same time hold uh, discriminatory policies against the fire industry. So if we look at like Bank of America, that says they won't do business with gun gun businesses. So they won't or city that says that they won't do business with anybody who sells a firearm to anyone under the age of 21, even though it's perfectly legal for an adult at the age of 18 to purchase a rifle and a shotgun. Uh, they hold this policy. So now these corporate entities have to certify with the state that they don't have discriminatory policies. And we're actually working with the attorney general of uh, Texas right now uh, because city certified that said that they didn't have any discriminatory policies. But you can go right onto their website, onto their blog where they talk about that they will not do business with anybody who sells a firearm to anyone under the age of 21 or anybody who sells a standard capacity magazine, that being a 30 round magazine for a rifle for an AR-15. So they're looking into that, uh, and they're they're you know going to you know be asking some very hard questions of city, and city may have to uh, you know so, you know walk away from some of those contracts that they have. They may have to forfeit those contracts, which would be damaging to them. But and it's not like we want to discriminate against them for that for that business. We just want them to drop their discriminatory policies against the fire ministry. We don't want them to be able to take taxpayer funded contracts. Use the profits from those contracts to turn around and deny you your Second Amendment rights. But interestingly, it is not just Texas that we're doing this at. We're actually doing that right there in Ohio. We're working with lawmakers to get the Find Act introduced in Ohio. We're yeah, working in we're Indiana.
0: working. We're working on that with you, Mark. Yeah. Um, in fact, yeah, exactly. we've been, we've gotten meetings uh, next week. That bill has not moved the way we would have liked to have seen it move. So. Uh, we actually have some meetings uh, coming up on that, and I, you know we'd very much like to see that bill move and eventually get signed into law for all the reasons you're talking about.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, they're in Ohio and in Kentucky and in Indiana. They're trying to work on it. Uh, I know that the, the bill has also been uh, uh, introduced. Uh, they're looking at being introduced again in Louisiana. It got passed. It was uh, vetoed by the governor. Uh, so they're going to make another run out there. I think Missouri is looking at it and, and a few other states. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that we're at the industry. We're trying to say, you know, play a little bit of offense here and protect the industry a little preemptively to to stop some of these woke corporations from trying to use their corporate boardrooms to set policy in America. Policy should be set by our elected officials who are accountable to the voters. The voters don't have a say in what these corporations are doing and it's not right that they're setting you know the laws through their corporate boardrooms by which you and I have to live because they're going to deny the financial services that these industries which are making a lawful product have to have to you know suffer through. So we're very excited about that. I think on the on the legal front, uh, in some of the courtrooms, uh, probably a couple of the biggest right now is we're of course facing this lawsuit by Mexico uh, against uh, several manufacturers. The, the, the case is in a court in Boston right now, uh, and Mexico is suing for ten billion dollars in damage, saying that the manufacturers. Their claim is that the manufacturers uh, are, you know, pushing arms across the border. Uh, which are causing the crime and corruption that you see in Mexico, which is. Laughable.
0: Also, so we so we are causing their crime and corruption.
1: That That's the claim. That, it's, that's it's a, that,
0: that's yeah. you've got to have some pretty uh, major balls <laughs> to make that kind of an argument.
1: It's uh, it, it's pretty outrageous. Uh, but again, this is uh, it's it's. When we start to peel the onion a little bit on this, we see that Mexico has been working with Brady United, the gun control group, to bring this lawsuit, and they're attempting to run around the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act by saying this isn't, you know, against the industry, uh, you know, trying to, you know, hold them accountable like the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act does. But it, but this is exactly why the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act exists. Um, you cannot hold a manufacturer responsible for the criminal actions of a, of a non-associate third party, and we are all. About working with the FBI and the ATF to hold uh, bad actors accountable. If someone is illegally moving a gun, and and they're illegally transferring a gun to to anybody, whether it be in the United States or out of the United States, moving that across the border, we want those people to be held accountable. But our industry does everything lawfully. They're working with the ATF under their regulations to make sure that they're following the letter of the law. Uh, what we're seeing is is case after case of corruption. Uh, to include their their military, to include their uh, elected leaders, uh, you know we've had elect, their elected leaders arrested on U.S. soil for corruption charges for working with the cartels. So it, it's it's laughable on its face. We're looking forward to getting into court. I think that you know the Mexican government's going to have to answer to why thirty percent of their arms out of their military go missing every year uh, when they keep claiming that they're finding. Uh, U.S. serial numbers on guns that are turning up at crime scenes. Well, it's the cartels that are working hand in hand with you know, corrupt military leaders and corrupt government officials. And, and there's only one gun store in Mexico, and that's in the heart of Mexico City, and that's in the heart of a Mexican army base. And in Mexico, you can only buy small caliber handguns, 22 caliber, 38 caliber handguns uh, or shotguns and, and, and low caliber rifles. So when they start talking about some of these other rifles that they see showing up of crime scenes and they love to point to things like the 50 caliber rifle. Well, that's obviously a, a firearm that has been, you know, illegally moved, and we need to look at who's doing that. And I think a lot of times when you're looking at that, it's the cartels. It's it's the government corruption. So yeah, we're really look forward to that uh, being brought forward and in, into uh, into the court.
0: So Mark, what about smart guns? Every now and then I'll see a story about this or someone has some legislation where they want to push smart guns. And uh, do you think that that those are ever going to catch on or become a major part of the market? And and just to describe smart guns, these are guns that supposedly, uh, it's sort of like an iPhone that they're, you know, you can only open your iPhone with, uh, you know, a fingerprint or something like that. and, And the firearms are supposed to work the same way. They only work when the owner, a specific person, handles them.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, we call it authorized user technology, and you're right, it can work either through a fingerprint or an RFID or radio frequency identification device. Uh, you know, most commonly like a, a watch or or a ring that's worn. That's when it's in close proximity, will unlock the gun. Uh, a keycard, a fingerprint reader. These are some of the ones that have been introduced before. We actually had a smart gun company exhibit at Shot Show. The company was called Smart Guns with a Z. Uh, they were there. And across town was Lodestar, another smart gun company that has been making news here lately. Uh, they did not exhibit, but they were in Las Vegas at the same time as the SHOT Show. Um, Interestingly, Lodestar has has tried to grant, you know, gain some headlines with their uh, with their new product. And again, the industry... Isn't against the product. If the market wants it, then the market will decide. What we are opposing is mandates for the technology. So we don't want to see a government come out and say this is the only kind of firearm you can own, or require firearm retailers, as in the case in New Jersey, that say if uh, if this becomes viable on the market, then you have to carry it in your store and make this available for sale. That's not fair to that retail. Let the market decide if the if the uh, consumer wants it, if the customer wants to buy that, then let them buy that, if they trust that technology. But again, there's our, there are considerations that have to be taken with the technology. When we talk about firearm, we're talking about something that is used in a defensive life situation. That means that firearm has to work each and every time it, the, the moment it's needed to, the way it's designed to work. It cannot fail. Uh, so when you start putting on smart gun kind of technology, the industry has very Deep concerns about product liability. What if it doesn't work when you need to defend yourself or your loved ones? What if you can't get it unlocked? And we've all seen that it's difficult to get your iPhone unlocked with your fingerprint. If it's wet, you have to pull your gloves off. Whatever it is, but when we're talking about using a firearm in defensive lights. We're also talking about a time where it's going to be a moment of crisis. It's going to be a moment of panic. So you want to eliminate every point of failure, and that's what good engineering does. It eliminates points of failure. And when you start adding on, especially electronic parts to a mechanical device, you're adding in points of failure, possibilities where something can go wrong and not work when it's supposed to. What if batteries die? What if, the, what if it gets blocked? What if it gets jammed? So you want to be able to eliminate those things and, and make that not a factor. So there are a lot of concerns by customers uh, about whether or not this technology is viable. I know there's a video out there of Lodestar demonstrating this, uh, this new handgun that they have on the market, and they were showing how it worked. Well, the video that I saw, you saw the, the, the owners of the company, the designers of the company, uh, you know, demonstrate the firearm. They held it out. They pressed the trigger. The gun fired. And then there was a second trigger press, and then there was nothing. So that tells me if I'm looking at that video correctly, there was a failure and that didn't work exactly the way it happened, the way it's designed. So we've seen this before. We've seen other companies come out and say that they had a viable product and it was ready for market when, in fact, it wasn't. It was able to be defeated with a magnet or was able to be uh, proven that it couldn't work each and every time. So there are concerns about it. I think they are rightfully deep concerns among people who are relying upon this to be something that they may have to use in defense of their life or the defense of their loved ones.
0: Yeah. I'm not uh, against that kind of a product, but mandating it is wrong. I mean, I can tell you I have an iPhone and there are a lot of times it won't open when it's supposed to open because, you know, different iPhones, some will open when you have a fingerprint, others will open with facial recognition. Sometimes that just fails and then you have to enter a, a code to get the phone to operate, I, on a car, I've got the keyless entry. That's an RFID t- type of technology. There are times when I you know, reach for that door handle, try to open the door, and it won't open. Yeah. And it just it just happens, and it might be a momentary thing, you know, an extra second or two to get into the car. Well, it's not a big deal if I'm just coming out of a restaurant and getting in my car. It is a big deal if I have to get into that car that very second.
1: Yeah, it is. Right. And it, yeah, you're exactly right. And we're talking about a firearm, the same kind of instance. You needed to work exactly when you needed to work. Um, you know, a couple of these companies, you know, I think it's Lowe's that said they're, they're working with a police department. Of course, they did not name that law enforcement agency that they're working with. Uh, but I know that Fraternal Lawyer Police, Jim Pasco has been out on the record before saying that he did not want to see you know police officers being used as guinea pigs for technology that may fail when their lives are on the line. Uh, so there's concerns. I, I served 25 years in the Marine Corps and, and the people love to say, well if it's good enough for the military it's good enough for everybody else but i know having served on the battlefield in iraq and afghanistan that if my firearm went down if my rifle went down or my handgun went down that i had to go to a secondary device and those two weren't working and I had to reach over for the rifle that was next to me on the battlefield, I needed to work when I pick it up. And if that is only coded for that Marine or that soldier next to me and it won't work for me, then it's nothing but a giant paperweight. And so when it comes to you know law enforcement or military application, there, there are concerns about it there. And I think the same thing, if I'm going to be using that firearm to defend myself in the home, I got to make sure that my wife is able to access and use that firearm to defend herself if I'm not around or I'm not close enough to be able to defend her. So those are concerns that I think that everybody has about these, uh, these technologies that are being introduced. Again, if, if the market wants it and people wanna buy it, let the market decide, but uh, the mandates are where we have the concerns. And, we, and again, the liability concerns for the manufacturers, uh, will they be held responsible if they are forced to put this type of technology on a gun and then that gun fails in that moment of crisis?
0: Well, Mark, thanks for all the great information. If people want to know more about the National Shooting Sports Foundation, where do they go?
1: Yeah, easy to find us. It's uh, nssf.org on the the internet. You can find out everything that we're doing with legislation. If you go to our legislative updates pages, both in the federal level and at the state level, and, and I know that you guys there at Buckeye Firearms, uh, Dean, you guys do so much work with us in Ohio. It's it's such a a huge help to have allies like yourself working alongside us to be able to work on some of these issues in the states because we are working with 50 different states and then 50 different issues and 50 different legislatures with all their own personalities. Uh, So if you want updates, what's going there, that's the best place to look. You can see our blogs. We're trying to update people as to what's happening in the industry, not just on the government relations side, but what's happening with the health of the industry. Uh, you know, we'll put out our, we recently put out that press release about uh, 5.4 million first-time gun buyers in 2021. So we want people to understand what's happening uh, with uh, with firearms and, and, and the firearm-owning culture in America.
0: Well, thanks for all the work that you guys do. And, uh, Mark, I hope to have you back again soon. So thanks again.
1: Look forward to it, Dean. Thanks so much for having us today.
0: That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.